Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. We did the first half of Acts chapter 20 last week. We come to the second half of Acts 20 this week. We live in a time and culture that seems generally cynical about leadership, and maybe rightly so. We could think of the low approval ratings of our president, or the even lower approval ratings of the Congress. We could think of leaders of industry, whether politics or entertainment, certain personalities and voices who have recently been exposed for gross misconduct with their co-workers or with a minor. We Christians might think of certain spiritual leaders, national authors or preachers who once sat comfortably in a bright spotlight, but like Humpty Dumpty, they had a great fall. Cynicism about leaders doesn't have to be quite so grand. It can be more more common and more, da- more mundane than that. It might simply be doubting your teacher's wisdom or expertise or methods of teaching. It could be protesting mom and dad's new rule or decision or simply wishing a pastor would do more of X, Y, and Z and less of A, B, and C. On the one hand, sometimes we're right and quite right to be suspicious about a certain leader and even to question. On the other hand, God has given leaders. Leadership is something that reaches the corners of our lives in almost every context. And so we must be careful to not grow cynical about leadership in general, as if every leader were simply a ticking time bomb and power hungry. No, God has given leaders, some good, some not so good, most pretty somewhere in between. But the Christian, on the one hand, can't follow leaders blindly. On the other hand, they can't dismiss all leaders in leadership as categorically flawed because they're leaders, like Marx would have had us thought. We as Christians have a category for good but flawed leaders and for leaders who really shouldn't be leaders. Now, rest assured, I'm not gearing up to talk about whether President Trump or Roy Moore, the senatorial candidate in Alabama, whether either of those are fit for office. Thankfully, we come to Acts 20 today to see a special leadership moment, not one in politics, but for the church. In Acts 20, the greatest Christian leader of the first century, except Jesus, maybe the greatest Christian leader ever since, he was giving his final charge to the leaders of the Ephesian church, what was the apple of Paul's ecclesiastical eye, the Ephesian church. He gives a speech to the elders there. It should remind us that God has given leadership to his church, imperfect leadership, but what hopefully is good leadership. It tells us what leadership should be and what it should do and why it's there and why it's needed. Now remember, if you've been with us in our study of Acts thus far, we've seen Paul's pattern 
of preaching the gospel, planting churches, and also appointing elders. Acts 14, verse 23, they appointed elders in every church and committed them to the Lord. Paul apparently stayed with a young church until it was mature enough to be handed off to leadership. That is, a a godly group of men who would stay there and shepherd that church. Because Paul always had to go on. He always had to move on. In the case of the Ephesian church, he'd been with them three years, much longer than any other stay in any other church. But he had to go on. In fact, he's already said his goodbye to the Ephesian church. We saw that last week in chapter 20, verse 1. As of this week, chapter 20, verse 17, he's now in Miletus, and he's headed to Jerusalem. But he wants one more moment with the elders of the Ephesian church. He doesn't want to go back to Ephesus. That would take too long. You'd have to say goodbye to everyone again. Everyone would want to have Paul over for dinner. Everyone would want to invite Paul to their community group. And Paul thinks that would take too long. And so he calls for the elders of the Ephesian church to come down to him in Miletus. About a four-day journey one way. But if Paul calls, you go. He's got something to say. He's going to give them a farewell speech parting words, a final locker room talk. It's emotional, it's tear-filled, it's vivid, it's instructive for leaders about how they are to lead and what they're supposed to do. So you might wonder, if you're not an elder in this church, how this is going to be relevant for you. Well, It is relevant. It's relevant for the whole church in that it's especially important for the elders of any given church, but it's also relevant for the church as a whole. Number one, Paul's speech here tells you, non-elders, what to expect and encourage in your elders and what to pray for regarding your elders. Number two, It shows you what you should look for in a church if someday you need to look for another church. What should the leadership look like? What are its earmarks? Well, Paul tells you. Third, some of you in this room are not yet elders, but may be someday. Maybe the Lord will even use this message to get you thinking. Why not? Why not me? Why not head towards that if God provides the opportunity. And number four, much of what Paul says to the elders of the church has indirect relevance for any Christian in any kind of ministry, especially those who do any kind of leadership. So while not every Christian is called to be a shepherd in the official sense of holding office in a local church, every Christian is to have some shepherding characteristics You're to be involved in sheep care, even as a fellow sheep. Some will do that in an official capacity. Paul addresses those. But others who don't have that office and use this in various contexts and with various sheep from time to time will find what Paul says instructive and useful. So let's read it. Chapter 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, 
You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I might finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Well, here Paul reviews his own example of shepherding in the Ephesian church. He gives specific direct instructions to the elders in their future shepherding. And then he closes with some words on his perspective regarding shepherding. So example, instruction, and perspective. With each of these three main points, we'll see a couple of sub-points that I think Paul is making along the way. We'll take most of our time this morning to talk about the first of these three points, and then we'll carry that over to our Lord's Supper service this coming Wednesday, where we'll look at some of these verses again. Let's start with number one, Paul's example of shepherding. Did you notice how autobiographical it is? How he's using himself as an example of what, no doubt, he expects them to do, to imitate. You know, he says in verse 18, I lived among you. You saw me from the first day till now. What was I like? What was I doing? Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials of persecution. 
These are the earmarks of Paul's ministry. Humility, tears, and trials. These are sort of the seasonings, you could say. Not so much the things he does, but the seasoning that's happening around what he does. What does he do? Well, that's the first of two subpoints under the example. He talks about his abundant teaching. Abundant teaching. How did he serve, as it says in verse 18? How did he serve with humility, tears, in the face of trials? Well, primarily through teaching. Just look down in your Bibles and stack up in your mind these multiple descriptions Paul gives regarding his teaching. Verse 20, he didn't shrink from declaring anything that was profitable. He was teaching in public and from house to house. Verse 21, he was testifying, both to Jews and Greeks, of repentance toward God and faith in Jesus. Verse 24, he says, I, I want to finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 25, I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom. Verse 26, he says he's innocent of the blood of all because he did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. In other words, he didn't hold anything back. He wasn't selective about what he taught them. It's not that he's saying, if I had stayed any longer in Ephesus, I would have run out of sermons and would have nothing to say. No, like most pastors, Paul would have had something to say. He's not saying that what Christians need is three years of intense discipleship and then they don't need anything anymore. No, he's saying that he gave them all of what they needed in a three-year span. He, he, he covered the bases. He gave them the whole plan of God. He, he taught them what we could say from creation to consummation. And he did it deliberately, if not systematically. The whole counsel, the whole plan, the whole Bible, holding nothing back. He taught them fully, frequently. He taught them unashamedly, publicly. He taught them personally. It says he went house to house. He taught them without fear. He didn't shrink back in fear. That's what that word means, shrink back. He taught them everything. Or you could say he taught them the gospel. On the one hand, Paul says, I taught you everything. On the other hand, he talks about how the sum in the centerpiece of what he taught them was simply the gospel. Repentance and faith in Jesus, the gospel of the grace of our God, or the kingdom. This is Paul's shorthand for the fact that Jesus, Son of God and Messiah, came and died in the place of sinners to free them from their guilt. And they can receive this as a gift if they only believe that it's true, confess that they need it, and ask him for it. This is the gospel. This is what Paul proclaims to non-Christians that they might become Christians. And it's also what he proclaims to Christians as he encourages them to think of the implications of it. The gospel for Paul is both invitation and it's also implication. And both are necessary. Both are the, the sum of his message. To unbelievers, it's how you come in. To the Christian, it's 
how you now live in light of what Jesus has done and who he is. And Paul said this enough and taught this enough from different angles that his conscience was clear. Verse 26, he says, I'm innocent of the blood of all. This comes from Ezekiel 33, where God spoke of prophets as watchmen, watching on a city wall, looking for danger, looking for encroaching enemies, who were to blow the horn when they saw such enemies. And if they blew their horn and warned the city like they should, but the city didn't flee, They didn't heed the warning? Well, then the blood of the people is not on the hands of the prophet. It's on their hands. On the other hand, if the watchman, whose job it is to watch and to warn, does either neither of those, warn or or watch, well, then the blood of the people is on his hands. But Paul has blown the horn. Paul has made the warning, not just once, but the whole time he was there. Not just subtly, not in a corner, but everywhere, and from everywhere in the Scriptures. And so if the Ephesians don't continue in the grace of God, Paul can say, I told you what you need. I gave you the whole thing. I didn't hold anything back that was necessary. Even those things you didn't want to hear even those things that you thought were weird. We could put it this way. Paul didn't handle the Bible like it was a lunch buffet, picking and choosing what he wanted to feed them or what he thought they wanted and leaving behind what looks mysterious or repulsive or just not as sweet. The Ephesian church couldn't say to Paul, Paul, why did you only give us desserts? Why didn't you give us all of what God laid out for us to eat? Why did you give us only what we told you we wanted? You knew better than us. They gave him the whole thing without apology, without sanding or varnish, where God's word has splinters and rough edges or cuts Paul let that cut. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, When we were with you, we didn't tamper with God's word, but we gave you an open statement of the truth. Do you see how all of this is very relevant for us as a church? All of us, not just leaders. It's relevant for the shepherds who feed, but it's also relevant for the sheep who eat. What do you want? What do you crave? What do you expect? What do you want more of in this church? From time to time, I, I hear that I, I probably should be more personable in my preaching. I probably should tell a little bit more funny stuff and uh, more stories would help. And, oh, it's so great when you get personal, when you tell us about your family. The thing is, I'm out of stories about my family. Right now, we're, we just keep doing the same stuff, and it's, it's not that interesting. Uh, it's probably true. It's probably true that I could 
think of how to engage better and keep your attention better than I do. But what do you want? What do we need? I hope our focus is primarily on God's word. I hope abundant teaching from God's word is an earmark of our church. Then Paul talks about anticipated trouble. After giving his example of teaching, he looks out on the horizon of what he expects to come for him, and and it's trouble. He has to go to Jerusalem, he says. He's been planning on this. That's been clear in the last couple of chapters. We know he wants to get a financial aid gift, you could say, to the suffering, impoverished Jerusalem church. Here he says he's constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And he doesn't know what that means for him, except that it probably means trouble. Because everywhere Paul goes, people are saying, perhaps by prophecy or some other way, it's trouble in Jerusalem. Perhaps they have heard by word of mouth of a plot against Paul in Jerusalem. Perhaps prophets are speaking. Perhaps Paul's receiving this word. It doesn't matter how he's getting it, but he's gotten word that trouble's ahead And yet he's undeterred. He says he must fulfill the ministry God gave him. From day one of his Christian life in Acts chapter 9, he was told how much he must suffer for the name of Christ. This man who once sought to destroy the way of Jesus and persecuted his followers to the death, This man has been so transformed by that same Jesus that his life is of no value apart from Christ. Verse 24, his life is of no value compared with the gospel and the mission and finishing well. He says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course. Recognize how vastly different that is than what the world tells us and preaches to us and models for us. The world around us, in so many words, says your life is precious, and that's all you got. So rule number one is keep living, don't die. If you die, you lose. Winning is staying alive. Rule number two is living well. And well is defined by rich, ease, comfort, joy, pleasure. But if Christ is our life, as Paul says in Philippians 1, and if dying is gain, as he says there, then that transforms everything. The here, the now, the future, living, dying, aims and purposes. Paul's a changed man. We would do well to model this, to occasionally recognize that our perspective must be different from the world, to account our lives as nothing apart from Jesus and what he wants us to do. By the way, Paul's approach to life and death and perspective like this, I think that helps us understand his willingness to hold himself up as an example to the Ephesian elders. Did you notice that? Did you find some discomfort with it? I suspect that's natural. Paul says an awful lot about himself, and he commends himself. He talks a lot about what he's done, 
And you might be thinking, I thought Christians were supposed to be self-forgetful and humble and not self-promoting, to not elevate themselves above others, to, to not think of themselves too much or too highly. And you'd be right. Those are all basically paraphrases from the Bible. But it's not all that the Bible says. The Bible has this category of human examples, imperfect examples that are genuine and good examples and needed ones. Of course, Jesus is the perfect example to us, but Paul can rightly say, follow me as I follow Christ. He said this to the Thessalonians, to the Philippians. He told Timothy this. He reminded Timothy that he's supposed to be an example. The book of Hebrews reminds us that those who went ahead of us and finished well, those are examples for us to emulate. This is all over the New Testament. It is tricky because some people could take that idea and run it into the ground, use it for self-promotion and vain glory. And some people then will follow those people and follow them headlong into the ground. There is a wrong way to follow a man or a woman that replaces God or trusts in princes. That's not what the Bible says. However, there is this category of a genuine, even imperfect model. The Apostle Paul sinned. He wasn't perfect in every way. But who could doubt that what he says is true? The Ephesian elders knew it. Paul did sacrifice much, and he did love much, and he did teach much. And he is willing to suffer and die for Christ. But don't forget, he doesn't care about himself. He doesn't consider his life to be precious. Therefore, we can follow this guy's lead, and therefore, we can actually even heed his invitation to do so. May we get this right. It takes wisdom, but may we, on the whole, say to some at times, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. We'll remind them that it's imperfect. We'll show them things that they shouldn't follow when those are apparent. And we want to also be genuine good models for others. And we want to look for those as well. Secondly, we come to Paul's instructions for the shepherds. Paul's instructions. He turns from this autobiographical section to direct instruction in verse 28. Instruction for the elders. Now, before we get into that instruction, we should know who it is exactly that we're talking about. We've presumed that so far. Who are elders, as they're called in verse 17? Who are the overseers, as the same people are called in verse 28? We see in verse 28 that they're also those who care for. Well, that's the verb form of shepherd or pastor. So we've got three terms that pop up a lot in the Bible, especially the New Testament, pastor, elder, overseer. Some church traditions have thought that these are different categories. I would argue strongly that they're not. They're used interchangeably here. Who are the elders? They are the overseers. What do they do? They pastor. 
Therefore, they're also called pastors. You see, these three terms have certain connotations to them to describe one office. Elders aren't merely the old guys of the church, but they're to be the wise guys, not in a bad sense. They're to be wise. They're to be mature. The overseers, well, it's obvious, right? They oversee. They lead. And pastors are to shepherd. That is, they are to lead and feed and protect. Jesus is the chief shepherd, but he has these shepherds, under-shepherds as they're called, under him in a local church to care for and feed and watch over the body. In the New Testament, elders are always in the plural. It's a group of them, as it was here in Ephesus. A group of elders, not one, a group came down to Miletus. These elders then are equal in authority. It's not that there are pastors up here and elders down here. It's not that there is a senior pastor who's the boss of all the junior pastors. That's not in the Bible. The only senior pastor in the Bible is Jesus. He's called the chief shepherd, senior pastor. These elders are to be local, that is, in a single church. Notice these are elders, plural, from a single church in Ephesus, not the churches of Ephesus. That means then that there's no ecclesiastical superstructure over local churches. And if these pastors are to be plural, equal, local, then we should also say simultaneously they're sheep as well. They're actually sheep first and foremost, and they get an extra task of shepherding the sheep in addition to their sheep identity. Because elders are also sheep, they're accountable to each other. They submit to one another, to the whole, just like you do. Now, some elders in a church may be more visible or more prominent or simply more loud than some of the other elders. Some will have shepherding as their full-time vocational job, like I and some others do. Uh, Some will have preaching and teaching, and the public preaching and teaching specifically, as a significant part of their job, like I do. That adds to visibility, that adds to prominence. But structurally speaking, as it pertains authority and office, all the elders are the same thing. They may specialize in this kind of shepherding over here or this kind of teaching there, but they're all doing the same shepherding work, and they're of the same shepherding variety. So to them, Paul says... Watch over the flock and watch out for wolves. Watch over the flock. Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Since the shepherds are also sheep, they got to watch over themselves. Since they're to be an example to the whole body, they have to watch over themselves. Like, Like Johnny Cash said, I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. That's what elders have to do. They have to watch 
themselves and to watch each other and to watch the eldership as a whole. And they need to watch over all the flock. No small part of shepherding is watching, observing. And that means that in a church the size of this church, there are some layers to shepherding that need to happen. Primarily in our church, that's done through community groups and community group leaders. Elders oversee several community group leaders. They are called coaches. That's not in the Bible, I know, but it's a, it's a, a matter of wisdom that we have conceived of a, you could say, in a sense, a man-made system for shepherding getting done on a close-up level. You can think of community groups as, as sheep shops. We work on sheep together there. And we all need help. And we all do it together. And shepherds, in the technical sense, that is pastors and elders, are overseeing the whole. That doesn't mean that they don't have any contact with sheep in our church. Oh, they do. They teach, they counsel, they're available, they'd love to get to know you. But, but in a church of several hundred, at some point, a certain size, a certain number of people requires elders to not think merely in terms of one-on-ones, but in terms of leaders and leading leaders. Or as Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, teaching those who are able to teach others also. And having said that, it doesn't mean then that shepherding becomes something besides shepherding, like merely management. No, the shepherds must be conscious that they're shepherds. They must be aware of their responsibility for the overall spiritual care of the flock and even the individual souls therein. Hebrews 13, 17. They are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give in account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. They're watching over as those who will give an account to God. Oh, that's lofty. That's sobering. It can be done in joy, and sometimes it's done in grief. I'm sometimes asked, what could we do as a church to support our elders and make it easier on them? And I always say, just don't sin. Okay, just don't sin. And of course, what I really mean is, don't go astray. Okay, stay married. Keep coming to church. Keep reading your Bible. Stay close with God. And that is a joy. And that doesn't mean that that's all that's going to happen. Simply because I say it mean, you know, uh, necessarily means that people will always do it. No, we, we know we have a category for people going astray and it being heartbreaking. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, when he's given a resume of his suffering, it's at first all external. Beatings and imprisonment and shipwrecks. And then he says... And not only this, there is also the daily pressure on me of anxiety for all the churches. He says, who is weak and I don't feel weak? Who is in sin and I'm not indignant? Righteously so. It's weighty. 
It's weighty because the Holy Spirit has made these men overseers. Verse 28. It's weighty because the church of God has been purchased with Jesus' own blood. These are his sheep. This is his pen. And he gives some responsibility to fallible human beings to watch over this blood-bought flock. That's serious. It's weighty. It's serious and weighty because of the threat of wolves. So the second part of this instruction, verse 29 to 31, watch out for wolves. Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Some of these people get named in 2 Timothy. It was actually in the church of Ephesus, fast forward 8 to 10 years later, when Timothy was there as Paul's representative. And Paul is writing, addressing these very false teachers by name. He knew they were coming. He knew they would be fierce. He knew they would seek to ravage the flock. Not only that, verse 30, from among your own selves, some will arise and speak twisted things to draw away disciples. Can you imagine being there in this group, among these elders, hearing Paul say, some of you are going to adopt crazy things, seek to promote it in the church, and lead people to hell. It's like a Judas moment, right? At the Last Supper, one of you is going to betray me. Is it me? Who is it? Well, that shouldn't make any eldership paranoid, but it should make them alert. Therefore, be alert and cling to the word. Paul says, remember, for three years I didn't cease night or day admonishing everyone with tears. Here we come back to the word again, don't we? The word, the teaching, that's all part of the watching, the feeding, the leading, and the protecting. To admonish is to warn. Paul says, in light of wolves who are going to come in, in light of the fact that some of you are going to fall away, don't neglect warnings. But do it with tears. He admonished everyone with tears. Now, lastly, we come to Paul's perspective on shepherding. We've already seen several things related to Paul's perspective on shepherding. We saw that with his example, with his instruction. It shows elements of his perspective on all this. But, but now, as he comes to the end of his speech, he's going to make two things explicit. He's going to commend the Ephesian elders to God, and he's going to show how they should be like he was Committed to give. Let's take each of those one at a time. They they are commended to God, verse 32. What a wonderful statement this is and how needed it would be after the warnings about wolves from without and apostasy from within. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul's reminding them, the Ephesian church as a whole, the elders specifically, they are in God's hands. 
They are in the care of the word. That word is a word of grace. That word is able to build you up. That word, above all earthly powers, is able to give you an inheritance among those who are being saved and sanctified. What an encouragement. A verse worthy of your meditation this next week, if not your memorization. They have to have this perspective that God is getting it done, that they're in God's hands. Yes, they'll have to work hard. Yes, they'll have to be watchful. Yes, they will have to use God's word, and that takes care, and that takes time. But ultimately, they are in God's hands in the care of his word. It's a word of grace. It builds up, and it gives an inheritance. They should also be committed to give as Paul was. Paul returns to an autobiographical note at the end again. He uses himself as an example once again. Verse 33, I coveted no one's silver or gold or, or apparel when I was with you. You people know, I I made tents. I paid for my own food and for the food of all those who were traveling with me. We, We took care of ourselves and didn't lean on you. Why? Verse 35, that I might show you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. Now, Paul wasn't always about this MO. He didn't always do this of not receiving funds from a church to which he ministered. In fact, sometimes he actually encouraged support uh, or asked for financial support or defended ministers getting financial support. In, In 1 Corinthians 9, he says just flatly, those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. That wasn't an ironclad rule. No, Paul here in Ephesus, though he could have asked for support, didn't. Because he wanted them to learn and observe that he wasn't in it for the profit, that he wasn't driven by greed or covetousness, and he wanted to show them, not just teach them, but show them how working with your hands in what we might call in secular work, how that has divine holy purposes to serve others, to give to them. Paul was committed to giving, not committed to getting. Here's how he put it in his letter to the Thessalonians. He says, we weren't idle when we were with you. We didn't eat anyone's bread without paying for it. We were toiling day and night. One, that we might not be a burden to you. And not because we don't have that right to receive financial remuneration. But to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. As Paul goes on to say, we were teaching you not to be lazy. We were teaching you that if any man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. In order to teach you that, we wanted to show it to you. And with the Ephesian elders, Paul wanted them not only to work hard in general, not only be committed to giving, but he wanted to show them that this is a Jesus-like thing. 
He wanted them to live out what Jesus taught. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus knew this better than any of us. He gave of himself to the full. On that cross, he gave his very life at great pain and experienced spiritual and emotional anguish in separation with the Father that we can't fathom, not even in the best theological terms. Jesus showed us and taught us it is more blessed to give than to receive. So here's our motivation for any sacrifice we make, whether it's routinely giving to the operation and ministries of this church or to meet the needs of those who have less and are in difficulty or simply giving of yourselves, giving of your time, giving of your teaching, giving of your your care, your concern. Paul gave in all these ways and he did so Because Jesus gave more. Because Jesus shows us how to give. Because having been great recipients of his grace, we can give greatly. With that, Paul said his goodbye to the Ephesian elders. He knelt down with them. He prayed. They hugged. They kissed on the cheek, which they would do in that culture. And with tears, they said goodbye. They were sad that Paul was leaving and that he said they wouldn't see his face again. They were heartbroken because their friend and their father in the faith was going away and they would miss him. But their father in the faith was going away. And perhaps that felt a a bit scary. Well, you're not going to come back and check on us? This is it? No more return? No more three more year visit? I'm sure these elders, as any good elders do, felt inadequate at this moment. But they are already in the hands of God, in the hands of the word of grace. God will get them to heaven along with all whom he's saving. Therefore, they can wipe the tears away. They can walk back to Ephesus And they can get to work among the sheep, with the sheep, for the sheep, for the glory of God. Elders who are in this room, this is awesome, lofty work. And I'm so privileged to get to do it with you. Church, know that your elders are far from perfect, that they feel inadequate, But also know that Acts 20 is what we're aiming for. And 1 Peter 5 and 1 Timothy 3 and others. This is what we're aiming for. This is what we this is how we view our job description. Help us, pray for us, encourage us, occasionally thank us. Let's together watch over the flock. Let's keep watch on ourselves. Let's keep watch on each other. And let's together keep our eyes on Jesus. 
let's together say to each other this morning, we commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which builds up and gives an eternal inheritance. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, you indeed are our great shepherd, our chief shepherd. We thank you for that. We thank you that you've bought us. We thank you that you saved us. As we prayed earlier in our service, we pray again for those who are with us and are wondering what this is all about and if they even would want in on it. Perhaps today they would hear your voice. They would know your name. They would, like sheep do, they would come to their master and join us in this flock, this church. Imperfect though it is, it is yours and you have bought it. We thank you for your love, your care, your shepherding of us. May we, Lord, stick close to you for your namesake. Amen.